Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is longtime friend and great medical practitioner, Dr. Patrick Merrill, who has been a cardiologist for over three decades in Southern California and is currently involved in research in immunology. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Merrill. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the introduction. (laughs) You're very welcome. And if you wouldn't mind, please go ahead and start us with a brief word of prayer. Very well. I particularly uh, like the um, St. Michael, the Archangel prayer. Um, It's, I think, particularly relevant. You know, it should be a good reminder for us daily. So I'll just say, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. St. Michael, the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the divine power of God, thrust in the health Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. Amen. In the Father, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now, Dr. Merrill, you've been a cardiologist for quite a long time, and then you transitioned right around the time that COVID was coming up. Tell us a little bit about what you've been involved with, because I know that you have been involved with some of the immunology uh, research, especially regarding um, this nasty little virus called COVID-19. Well, I retired, and then I worked uh, per diem for a couple of years. Then I was, as I mentioned before, put out the pasture uh, for cardiology. But then I had been invited to come back to work in the hospital and and to work on the phones uh, to help manage patients who have COVID and you know, to also address some of the treatments that were going on in the hospital. So recently, most recent, most currently, actually, I still make uh, calls for patients who are uh, afflicted with COVID to try to connect them with appropriate therapy, medical therapies, oral tablets or intravenous therapies uh, to try to help them uh, get over, recover, to ameliorate most of their uh, symptoms and try to get them to recover faster. Okay, so your current involvement really has been in trying to head off at the pass some of the more devastating aspects of what this disease can do to people that not all physicians are either recognizing or working with. Yes, and uh, unfortunately also there are some restrictions regarding the use of certain medications on the inpatient basis compared to the outpatient basis. And unfortunately, the most effective therapy against COVID is prevented from being used on an inpatient basis. What does that mean? You're, you're saying that someone going into the hospital can't get it? or Unless a physician uh, will move a mountain, the, the standard therapy in the hospital is that the patients will not receive this particular therapy, which is quite perplexing. And if you don't mind me waxing medical for a moment... Yeah. What it is, uh, and what I'm talking about specifically, are the monoclonal antibody therapy uh, that's used to treat patients with COVID. It's an intravenous therapy that uh, doesn't take long to infuse, and it's done on an outpatient basis 
for patients who are ill and getting worse or who have particular risk factors for getting worse uh, to try to help prevent them from getting worse. Unfortunately, if you are sick enough to be hospitalized, once you're in the hospital, the uh, physicians in the hospital um, will not give you that particular therapy. It's Why? Well, oh, good question. It's because the um, what they call the emergency utilization authorization that's been granted for this particular medicine hasn't been given for inpatient use. It's, it was it was only studied and used for mildly symptomatic patients. Wasn't this or a similar? treatment used for Mr. Trump when he came down it's with COVID? It's interesting, yes. Uh, we've had two presidents who've had COVID recently. Uh, one president uh, received the monoclonal antibodies. The other president received an oral therapy. The one president who received monoclonal antibodies did extraordinarily well. Uh, the one person president who received the oral therapy had a difficulty... Um, Achieving uh, a virus-free state uh, and ended up uh, suffering a couple of bouts of uh, recurrent COVID infection. Now, what they gave him was still good. Yeah. What they gave uh, uh, Mr. Biden. Yeah. But it, it wasn't as good as what, in your opinion, it is not generally as good as what monoclonal antibodies could have done. Well, here's the thing. And believe me, um, the virus has the ability of... Uh, of changing, uh, you know, it mutates, and which is why the monoclonal antibody therapy, we use the, the term monoclonal antibody therapy because the various antibodies have changed over the course of the disease, unlike the vaccine, which has not changed, uh, unfortunately. But we can discuss mm -hmm. those things later. But the monoclonal antibody therapy physically interacts with what's referred to as the spike protein on the virus. The virus uses the spike protein to interact with cells, which then uh, incorporate the virus into the cell. The virus then takes over the machinery for multiplication. It multiplies, it blows up the cell, it spills out multiple copies of the virus to go on to do it to other cells. The monoclonal antibody physically adheres to the virus, and it prevents the virus from actually accessing a cell. In other words, what you're doing is that you're physically quenching the virus's ability to access another cell. You truncate its ability to, to multiply at that point. So it, it stops. It stops it in its tracks. Now, a person who's affected with COVID doesn't have the necessary antibody to inhibit the virus. And in fact, we rely on a cellular type of immunity to actually uh, fend off the virus for the most part, for the first two weeks. So everyone is utilizing their T-cell immunity to help fend off the virus, which is the cause of a lot of the symptoms, the fevers, uh, the myalgias, uh, and the other things. The monoclonal antibody, what it does is it shifts the, uh, the process where the virus is trying to literally explode, and it does so exponentially in the body, it literally stops it in its tracks. And so your body then has a uh, tremendous uh, advantage now uh, since the virus is no longer replicating. It can eliminate the virus a lot earlier. And the type of treatment that Mr. Biden received, that's a whole different way. Of, that, that's basically, 
It's an antiviral in a different way. Yes. Let me explain a little bit. The longevity of the infused monoclonal antibody, which is an actually human protein, it's a human protein that is infused, it lasts for about two months. So whatever virus is there and replicating, it's going to be, in fact, being inter- uh, interacting with the residual infused monoclonal antibody. Right. The oral tablets, the Paxlovid, is actually two therapies. It's, it's two medications. Right. One is what they call, a, 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 I think it's a 3C-like protease inhibitor, and the other one actually inhibits the digestion of the first one in your body. Okay. So, so it's, it's a combination, but it's a combination. There's other medications that do that type of thing. Uh, one, Cinemet, that's used to treat Parkinson's, has it's a combination of medications. But this is, so it's not an unusual thing, yeah. but it, it, it does happen. Okay. But the thing is, is that the pharmacology and the, the, the kinetics of the Paxlovid in the body is that once you stop taking it, the medication is evanescent. It, its half-life is hours, whereas yeah. the half-life of the monoclonal antibodies is weeks. Okay, so what was given to Mr. Biden, which was an antiviral as opposed to the monoclonal antibodies, which right. basically stops the the reproduction of the virus's capabilities, he experienced this this rare, it's sort of rare, Rebound. Rebound of yeah. the disease. Yeah. And is that because the antiviral was working when it was working, but then when it went, when they took it out of the system because they weren't using it anymore, it wasn't finished, so it came back? What happened? Well, I don't have access to Right, not to him, but generally. <laughs> but I would say... What would you expect prob- probably happened? I would say, and I will I will also say, I've used Paxlovid. I've, I mean, yeah. not, not personally, but I've prescribed yeah. Paxlovid to hundreds of patients, and... And it is a relatively uncommon thing to have somebody who doesn't get a uh, significant benefit, actually within, starting within 24 hours of them taking the medication. And I'm not gainsaying the medicine. It's uh, you know it's, it's a useful thing. No, you use it. I, I, yeah. I, I, and and but I would also say that there is some problems, and I'm I'm not sure about whether various patients may have other things going on that may prevent them from taking the the medication appropriately you know i can't blame the medication necessarily if i don't know right if i if the if so it's possible he didn't take what he was supposed I, to when he did okay. I, I don't know you know i just know that assuming they, that they got him his meds on time though, yeah yeah what else could have gone wrong well it's an antiviral therapy it's designed to try to inhibit the virus from from multiplying it's conceivable it's not inconceivable you know that the dosing wasn't sufficient. Uh, okay. That he didn't get adequate inhibition. I, I, you know, I, okay. I don't know. I but, would just say, in a generic sense, there are you know the reasons why patients may have some problem with the medication: either insufficient uh, ability of taking the medication, insufficient uh, quantity of medication. They may metabolize it faster than a normal person because of certain other things that their body is uh, is taken, mm-hmm. and their liver enzymes have. Uh, Adjusted up or whatever, you know. There's a variety of things. I also I don't want to go too much, too much in the weeds either. Right. But what I'm, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying this is a good medication. Yeah. But the monoclonal antibodies are are generally better, but they're not available. Well, the monoclonal antibodies are are extremely good when they have the appropriate variant. Okay. There are uh, other anti- monoclonal antibodies that we've had in the past, the Regencov, which 
because of the mutations in the um, receptor binding domain of the virus, certain of the monoclonal antibodies no longer have a sufficient fit to neutralize the virus. As a consequence, the virus can still actively multiply. But uh, if you have an appropriate selected monoclonal antibody for the appropriate variant, I've, I've had some remarkably fast improvements. I'm telling you, remarkably fast. Okay. We're going to take a break here, and it has, it, it's been good to talk about where we are with the treatments for COVID-19. We have a number of things that are on the horizon, and that includes not only some of these other viruses that are coming up, but I'd like to also get your opinion on some of the trends that have developed uh, in our society regarding uh, Catholics and medicine. We're talking with Dr. Patrick Merrill, and you're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio, and we will be right back. Have you been to the Christ Cathedral campus lately? There's no time like the present. Here's some good words from Father Christopher Smith and Deacon Frank Chavez. This place is for everybody. Yes. yes. All are welcome. When you're here on weekends, it's just powerful, exciting, which brings us to the diaconate. Deacons bring the grace of the altar to the streets and bring the needs of the streets to the altar. Beautifully. So this place is for everybody. For more great content, Check out SpiritFilledRadio.org. SpiritFilled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. SpiritFilledRadio.org. Spirit-Filled Radio shares gems of our Catholic faith each and every day. Here's a word from Deacon Steve Greco along with Father Augustine Puffner about the sacrament of reconciliation. So many people go to priests that they don't know because they're afraid that, wow, what's the priest going to, priest really going to know me, you know, and all that. So tell us about that whole area. Well, first of all, don't be afraid to our listeners. Don't be afraid. And let me just say that as sincerely and gently as I can. Don't be afraid of confession of God, because God's mercy is that embrace of the loving Father who is waiting and watching for you to return to Him and to return to His love and to return home, home to the church, home to your spiritual family, where you will be embraced with great love and enthusiasm and will be supported. So I know that the fear factor is definitely something that we pray that everyone will overcome. For more great content, check out SpiritFilledEvents.com. That's SpiritFilledEvents.com. Spirit-Filled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. SpiritFilledEvents.com. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And with me today is Dr. Patrick Merrill, who has been a cardiologist for, for more than three decades and is currently working on research in immunology. And we were talking, um, Dr. Merrill, before the break about some of the differences in treatments for, for COVID-19. We were contrasting the two different presidential infections. The one that was treated early on in the infection history with monoclonal antibodies, and Mr. Trump recovered very well from that. 
and the other with uh, Mr. Biden, who was given antivirals instead. And his recovery was not as good. The good news is we're seeing treatments that are leading to recoveries, whereas in the, uh, a year ago we were still, when people went off to the emergency room, you, you didn't know if you were going to see them again. And it was a traumatic, horrible time, and the, the lockdowns and everything else made it a, a terrorizing time. Would you be able to even say goodbye to someone who was who had this disease? Where are we now, and is is this something that the government is helping with? Or hurting, or is it a mixed bag? Interestingly, uh, the government, and I would say uh, on the receiver's end, that is, you know, for me to be prescribing these particular medications, I see that uh, the facility that I work at gets these. They're distributed actually not directly to my hospital, but through the Riverside County Health Department, and they distribute it to various lo- uh, locations in Riverside we happen to be one of the hospitals that have it, so we administer it. But it's only administered on an outpatient basis, and that was that's the, kind of the daunting thing. And still the question as to why these medications, why these monoclonal antibodies are not being utilized on an inpatient basis. Part of that is because of the, uh, the EUA, the uh, Emergency Utilization Authorization, that was given for these medications. But it doesn't necessarily uh, prohibit a physician who is, um, I would say, aggressive enough to actually uh, push forward and try to prescribe them in the hospital, in the hospital. So this really amounts to significant headwinds against what you're able to practice. Exactly, which is why, as I mentioned to you before, <laughs> I'm very aggressive about trying to make these phone calls uh, to try to get these patients, to try to treat them on an outpatient basis, because uh, my fear is, is that if they do get into the hospital, they won't be able to access the most appropriate and uh, efficient therapy to help stop the uh, the infection. So if you're outside the hospital, you have the possibility of receiving something yeah. that you can't have when you go inside the hospital because of the regulations. This, yeah. this reminds me of Reagan's famous nine terrorizing words, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the fortunate thing is, is that um, your tax dollars have been able to provide these medications um, for the treatment of COVID, uh, without cost, they should be without cost. Yeah, which is great. No one should fear asking for these medications because yeah. you will not be charged for them, yeah. at least right now. Yeah, and that's the case. Um, I do know uh, that there is the um, Health and Human Services has sent out a, uh, a memo indicating that the uh, government liaisoning with the company that manufactures a monoclonal antibody will n- not be continuing at the end after the end of August. And so the company will be selling the medications apparently directly to hospitals, which may influence the uh, therapy and the uh, in, in the utilization thereof. But, in what way influence? Well, if hospitals now have to uh, pay out of pocket from their own budgets, they're less likely. They're less likely to stock a, a, a large supply. Fortunately, uh, the uh, variant that we're seeing now. Most people are able to weather that even without the use of either the antiviral or the monoclonal antibodies. It's, this it's, is the B, BA5, is that what they call it? Uh, it's BA5, uh, BA4. Um, you know, I, I don't know the exact proportions that they're in, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the, the monoclonal antibody, the bebtilovimab, yeah. the one that I've been prescribing for the last eight months, is still very effective against that variant, as, as it has been also 
it still has effectiveness against the prior variants. So it's a very useful medicine. So in this case, we've got the government getting involved, which is hamstringing some of the practice of medicine from your perspective. Correct. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but from a Catholic <clears throat> perspective, this is a calling, isn't it? <laughs> to, to be able to to serve the people that are in need and in sometimes having to go beyond what the government is wishing we would do. Yeah, that's... Uh, that seems so strange to yeah. even say that. <laughs> well, yeah, it is strange, uh, and it seems to be paradoxical. And it's uh, it's the old algorithm that we're, we're up is down and down is up, and you know, and this is that. So there's a there's a lot of flipping of either meanings of words or you know intentions of things that have been going on over the last uh, couple of decades. Well, and I think I'd like to transition to some of those in just a moment. But before we actually get there. So the, your experience so far in working the last couple of years now with immunology, immuno, how do you, never mind, with with working with these viruses and their treatments has been one where you've actually had to to have the gumption to, to really stick by your guns to practice the medicine the way you really want to, sometimes in spite of a lot of governmental headwinds. Well, you know, but it's, it's nice to say governmental headwinds, but I don't stand in the room with the government. I stand in a room with a couple of people that I'm shouting at and with. You know? <laughs> so uh, they're not the, they're not from the government, okay. but they are. I mean, they're, they're they're influenced by it. They're influenced by either government edicts or reg- hospital regulations, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people. It'd be better if the government just got out of the business <clears throat> of medicine entirely. Well. Yes, but it would also be benef- beneficial if if the people who could change their mind when a different approach would be available when the approach that has been done isn't working hasn't hasn't been working. So, so in other words, it would be good as well if some of the people who are kind of hybriding between medicine and government would actually use the science in its in its latest form to take best practices and run with those, even if those best practices need to change. Yes, and you're kind to say people who are between the practice of medicine and government, we call them management. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're they're not in the treating community. (laughs) And and, and you're also, you know, you're you're, you're kind to say uh, about the uh, use of these therapies and finding where the science is. But let me just say something that I, I when I teach over at uh, the local medical school, I try to instill on, on the students, as I tell them, I say that the garden of heresy is fertilized with partial truths. And, <laughs> and where, you know, when people say follow the science, unfortunately, you know, you can get partial truths in science, too. Like statistics, exactly, <laughs> and and so the important thing is is view what is this quote unquote science and view it skeptically to see if it aligns with the whole truth, the absolute truth, and that is, I think, actually the most Catholic way. Because and, and and if I'm if I'm helping you segue, yeah. I hope I am. <laughs> but, you are. I, I I do want to ask two other questions before this section ends in a few minutes. There's two other things that have popped up recently, monkeypox and polio. Uh, I know that there have been a couple of cases of polio that have uh, occurred on the East Coast, and they've now done some testing of water and found polio in the water of some cities in their waste system, not in the drinking water, but in the wastewater, which my understanding is 
waste is actually one of the main ways polio is transmitted. And then there's monkeypox that's out there. Right now, my understanding is monkeypox is not nearly as as contagious as uh, some other viruses, such as COVID-19, would be, and that kind of like uh, HIV, it generally is transferred by close human contact, often sexually. Is is that true? That is true. So we're not as afraid of monkeypox in its spreading. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going out and getting a monkeypox vaccine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just say it's an, it's another disease, obviously. Uh, you know, it's, it seems that uh, behavioral changes may substantially reduce the transmission. So sticking to a Catholic sexual morality would be an effective way of reducing the spread of monkeypox significantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, got, I got to say, um, that would be good advice. Yeah, um, <laughs> okay. And then uh, with the polio, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, there seems to be a recurrence, uh, you know, in some locales. And it is, I think it's actually, it's the common way that for epidemiologists to seek out what problems are in the community by looking at wastewater uh, effluents and to seeing what viruses or bacteria are uh, in the areas. I mean, it would be reasonable and appropriate for them to be doing that. Well, but what we're seeing, there are some people I've heard are saying they're not too worried about a polio resurgence in general but that there are two different types of vaccines for polio uh, and that outside of the United States, the type that's being given can actually allow for polio to remain dormant in people and they can still spread it even if they're protected from the paralyzing aspects of it. Have I heard wrong on that or, or do you know about where that what kind of truth that might be? Actually, I haven't been following the polio okay. uh, concerns, so I would just say... I'll avoid, okay. I'll avoid announcing my ignorance. <laughs> the polio that you've heard about that's out there, though, is basically in, in kind of a trace form right now. We're not seeing a major polio outbreak, but when people have an occurrence of it or another occurrence of it, it's going to make big shouting headlines. We're not in the middle of another polio pandemic at this point. From your perspective, then, the biggest issue that we're still dealing with is COVID-19. That is spread through the lungs, mostly. Is that correct? Well, it's actually spread mostly through the oropharynx. And so through your, your mouth, mouth and throat. Yes, uh, where it replicates. Um, the virus will affect endothelial cells, multiply there, destroy the endothelial cell. By doing that, it actually causes the endothelium to release what's called ultra large von Willebrand factor vacuoles. And I'll stop right here and pick it up on the other side <laughs> because, because I know there's, there's, more, there's more material on this. But in short, we're still dealing with this, but it's, it's not something. We'll pick this up on the other side. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me is uh, Dr. Pat Merrill, and we are talking about uh, Catholic faith and medicine, and we've been working with immunology. When we come back, we're going to finish up on COVID-19 and go into a little more about what's been going on in our social structures of our society and how that affects medicine. We'll be right back.
encouraging our young people to pursue their God-given passions in the creative arts, like music, for instance. Here's a good word from David Ball, Christ Cathedral organist and head of music ministry, along with guest Michael Bauer. He, too, is a cathedral organist based in Long Island, New York. Sometimes organists get too stuck in their choir lofts and don't let the children in. It's like you have to, that's why children's choirs are so important. That's how I found my start. We have three young organ scholars right now. The thing I'm most proud of here is establishing that program. It's like there's a way, a path to the future of church music. Where's the future of the Catholic Church? Where's the future of Catholic Church music? It's in the young. In the young, exactly. Before the Industrial Revolution, the most complex machine on the planet was the pipe organ. Right. So, so for <laughs> centuries, until the middle, later 1800s, so uh, children, they're also they're fascinated by technology, by the mechanical parts. So if there's a way for them to see some of the workings of an organ, I found that incredibly fascinating. For more great content, check out spiritfilledradio.org. Spiritfilled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. Spiritfilledradio.org. In the studios of Spirit-Filled Radio, we like to have some fun every now and then. Here's host Ralph Linsmeyer of Finding Your Way with guest Megan Morris. Let's talk a little bit about what each of you guys are yearning for right now. Megan, what are you yearning for? Always a cup of coffee, Ralph. <laughs> for more great content, check out SpiritFilledEvents.com. Spirit-Filled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. Spirit-Filled Events. And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the Tower of Hope on the campus of Christ Cathedral, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Dr. Patrick Merrill, who is involved in research on immunology and has been in medicine for several decades. Semi-retired. He tried to retire at one point from uh, several decades in cardiology and has been brought back into the field a few years ago when this little bug called COVID-19 hit the scene. And Dr. Merrill decided that he could use some of his brain power to be able to to rework a little bit into this area of medicine. And he has been treating hundreds of people and working with students and doctors on trying to understand what are the best practices and how to treat this. We were just talking about COVID-19, how it spreads, because I was going to go into a question about some of the best practices and whether or not what our government does for us is as helpful as what we might be able to do. Before we get there, you were talking about how it spreads in the throat and how it attaches to the epithelial cells that are in the throat. Well, actually, um, it it affects the nasopharynx. It, prolif- it digitally multiplies in the uh, epithelium of the nasopharynx, but it also okay. gets the nose. It gets picked up in the uh, in the venous return. And gets into the pulmonary vasculature where it affects the endothelial cells in the vasculature. Now, this is what... That's in your lungs. Well, it's in the lungs. It's actually everywhere in okay. your body. Every, every blood vessel in your body is lined with endothelium. Okay. What happens is that the virus with the spike protein interacts with the ACE2 cell receptor. It gets into the cell, multiplies, destroys this endothelial cell, moves on with uh, hundreds if not more copies of the virus to affect other cells. 
by affecting the endothelial cells, the endothelial cell, its response will be to release what's called ultra-large von Willebrand factor multimers, which stimulate platelets to adhere to the side of the blood vessel. Platelets then start mounting on top of each other to, um, because they're being attracted to each other to stick. They think that the, that the vessel is damaged. So their response is to stop flow. So your, your body now, I just want to pause for those of us who, who don't have the medical degree, your body now is basically sending out platelets, which are often used to clog cuts and things. But in this case, they're trying to do a miniature job inside your blood vessels, and they're beginning to build up. That's right. And what happens is that with the, with the, with the microvascular clog there, downstream tissue doesn't get fed, and it will then dissolve, or we call it necrose, or die. You have little mini... Mini clots. Mini clots. Mini clots causing multiple damage sites. So what was happening, and this was particularly bad with the alpha, and even a little less so with the delta variant, and we're still seeing to a degree some of that in the Omicron variants, but not nearly as badly, because you can tell by the morbidity and the mortality for the people who are being hospitalized, the um, mortality rate for the alpha variant was about 10%. The uh, mortality rate for the delta variant was about 4%. The mortality rate of the Omicron variants is about 03 to 0.4%. Wow. Now, you'd say, well, that's because the virus is mutating. It, it is. But it's 1 30th as, as deadly as what it was before. As it, as it used to be. Yet there are still patients who are still being adversely affected by the virus, and that's the case. But the virus was designed to, in fact, actually specifically interact with human ACE2 cell receptors. You you use the word design now a couple of times. I'm not going to go into it too much, but your opinion is this was probably of a human origin. Yes, I would say that the... The The antecedent of this was likely a laboratory. We're still looking for the uh, zoonotic... uh, We haven't found a unicorn yet. Okay. (laughs) Anyways, but but I just say, you know, if you're looking at this from the the most logical, the thing that that fits all the scenarios, it was was actually designed. And, but, you know, I I think arguing the the weaker point of being a zoonotic uh, thing that jumped is a lesser argument. So if we just uh, agree that it was designed, we go on, move forward. Forget whether it was a natural design or a human design. doesn't matter at this point. What difference does it make at this point? I think that was a quote from somebody. Anyway. Well, it does make a difference. I will tell you. It it, it does make a difference because if they can release an alpha variant once... They can release a different alpha variant. They may be able to do it again. Okay. That's a different set of questions to go down. I'm not sure I want to do. I was going for the idea of masking, and if it is in the mouth and nose primarily, is masking that we were told to do for so long, was that a helpful thing or a not very effective thing? Or We spent two years learning the fine art of wearing a mask. Well, you, you'll find people who today have, are still only receiving their, their uh, first infection. And so most of the patients who are, still, who are getting infected now for the first time we're very compliant with wearing the masks and are, you know, when I talk to them on the phone, they're extraordinarily disappointed at the fact that they came down with the infection. Mm-hmm. Um, so even as fastidious as you are, you're probably not going to be as fastidious as you need to be to prevent this thing. The virus is a very small particle, and the paper masks that people have been using commonly uh, are insufficient, even the N95s. N95 means 95% of the time they'll be effective, 
is 5% of the time they won't be effective. So if we just do the math on that, 5% of the time is one out of every 20 wearings, it's not going to be effective. I mean, if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. You can do that. All right. Well, I just I play with the math a little bit there. All right. But it's, it's, it's not a foolproof idea. Stuff happens. You know, that's just that. And most people are, are not wearing them correctly. And the little blue things that they're wearing, as you said, are, are not. Those aren't really even N95s, the little blue surgical masks that they've been selling from China. All over the United States, they're not really... And 95s, they're not as effective. Well, yeah, I, I don't do quality control over this stuff, but yeah, uh, I, 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 I do know that the paper masks um, are, are more designed to stop water droplets than they are virus, okay. um, which is which is a much smaller particle. So in the end, at this point now, with it being 130th or so as as deadly as what it was a year and a half, two years ago when the Alpha variant came out, and it's continuing to to change how its genetic code is working, therefore it's mutating, we're likely to have this in our environment f- forever. It's here. And the good news so far has been that the variants have been getting less deadly. That actually is a is a fairly common pattern with most viruses, is it not? It is, but I, I would say... For me, it's reassuring that uh, if this was, in fact, actually a designed virus and it was designed to have a maximal effectiveness of interaction with the uh, human ACE2 protein or the receptor, then all other variants will have to be less pathologic. I'm thinking, well, okay, is the worst over? I'm optimistic, but I will also say that pandemics don't follow a standard Gaussian distribution they follow chaotic exponential uh, distribution. So, so the management mm-hmm. trying to manage this yeah. are dealing with something that's being rather unruly and undisciplined. The virus is not responding necessarily the way that policymakers would like it to. Well, I, I think that it's shown itself to be particularly uh, capable of mutating, which is what an entity like a virus does, and particularly an RNA type of virus does. So what lessons should we take from this as we move forward? We, we, we don't have the fear in monkeypox at this point, but as you put it, there, there, someone could release something again. That's possible. Mm-hmm. We could also have something get discovered uh, as we continue to go further and further into different parts of the world and and we interact with animals that have viruses that are suddenly released onto the world, which some people claim this was. What have we learned from this from your perspective on how the governments of the world should be responding to these kinds of events? What's been helpful from your perspective as an immunology-focused physician right now from a policy perspective on how to best empower the medical response in doctors like you? I would have to say the, um, the one thing uh, that we should celebrate and uh, try to promote are individual ideas and concepts uh, as opposed to trying to treat everyone the same. And I, I think one size doesn't fit all. Ex- yes, and I, um, I, you know, to broach the topic of uh, social medicine versus what I would say is tr- traditional uh, approach in American medicine, at least the way it was when I was trained, is uh, you treat the patient 
rather than you know you try to treat the the, the society. So while they're dealing with a solidarity-based policy, meaning the overarching large policies of the United States, real medicine actually takes place on a level of subsidiarity on the closest local patient-doctor relationship. Yeah, and I, I try to stress that to the medical students that I have is that it's very granular. It's actually, um, you know, very personal. In order for you to treat a patient, you, you need to have a bond and a trust and a degree of honesty uh, and openness between the patient and the doctor that the doctor has to get information honestly from the patient, and the patient has to have confidence that the doctor is going to do things in the patient's best interest. So when we're looking at how we've, what we've learned from the governmental response here, it sounds like um, the idea of trying to mobilize all of our, all of our resources was, was a good idea in general, but the idea of then limiting how it would be used may have been somewhat counterproductive. Exactly. Okay. When we come back, I want to see if we can apply that to how Catholics are engaging other medically uh, relevant social concerns of our day. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Dr. Patrick Merrill, who has been involved in medicine for several decades. He had been a cardiologist for more than 30 years and has recently been doing research in immunology for the last few years, working especially with treatment of COVID-19 and in trying to work with what is best from a best practices perspective on treatment. When we come back, I want to ask what lessons we might be able to apply to how Catholics can look at what we're facing as a society when it comes to medical practice. And we will be right back. Spirit-Filled Radio presents Wedding Bands with Cindy and Deacon Angelo Giambroni. Getting sage advice is one thing, but there's no substitute for real hands-on experience. People try and tell you. (laughs) They try and tell you that having children changes everything, Mm -hmm. and you don't really know it until it happens. That's right. And now they're grandparents. Which is awesome. The best part about being a grandparent is that you get to do all the fun stuff with the kids. And then at the end of the day, you give them back to their parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was the joke? Best thing about being a grandparent is that you and the grandchild have a common enemy. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just as a joke. It's Wedding Bands with Deacon Angelo and Cindy Giambroni on Spirit Filled Radio. Come and check out all the podcast episodes at spiritfilledradio.org. That's spiritfilledradio.org. In the studios of Spirit-Filled Radio, we hear powerful stories about real-life situations every day. Recently, Katie Hughes of the Thy Kingdom Come podcast welcomed two young women who were getting ready for their first years of college dorm life. Listen to the words of a brave young lady named Jenna. Jenna, do you know who your roommate is yet? No, so I've actually had a little bit of trouble with that. I originally had a roommate... And when Roe v. Wade got overturned, I posted a video on my Instagram story of Mother Teresa talking about unborn babies and, like, how their lives matter, basically. Yeah. 
and how like the saddest thing is like a mother killing her own child. Me and Jess both just saw so many people posting that they were upset about it being overturned. Mm-hmm. And so we just wanted to like put ourselves out there for the people that are too afraid to basically mm-hmm. um, that would agree with us. So she saw that post and she ended up messaging me and saying that she didn't want to room anymore. So. Well, you know what? Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing is pray for her because they're listening to lies of the enemy about abortion, but that the Lord will bring someone else a better choice for you. Thank you for standing up for life. Be encouraged for young people such as this are the future of our church. For more great content, check out SpiritFilledEvents.com. Spirit Filled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. SpiritFilledEvents.com. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today has been Dr. Patrick Merrill. And before we go any further, I want to pause for a moment and say thank you very much, Dr. Merrill, for coming in and sharing some of your thoughts and expertise, both as a medical professional, but also as a Catholic. So thank you for coming in and spending your time with us today. You're quite welcome. And with that in mind, we have been focusing on your recent experience in working through the last couple of years of immunology in regard to the COVID response and how to treat people with that. And it's, it's raised for me a couple of, of lessons, I think, that we as Catholics should be taking uh, notice of. And that includes the, the positive role of the government to try to put an emphasis on marshalling forces but yet also the negative role of the government when it limits and ties the hands of doctors and health professionals, mental health professionals, in some of the things that they're able to do. So, for example, uh, and I realize this is not within your field, but I think analogously there's an interesting caveat here that that, uh, might apply. We have been looking at how we define the human person, and a lot of people uh, on in political centers have really advocated a non-binary approach to how we approach the sex of people and by extension their genders and one of the things that has taken place over the years are in some states and some locations the transition for children from what we would call a boy to what we would call a girl in common parlance has included medical operations, uh, medical um, procedures, all sorts of things. And in some states, if a child presents themselves as being of, of wanting to transition, parents are being forbidden to do much about it, and doctors are being forbidden to do much about it. I see that as analogous to what may have happened to cause problems for the response in COVID-19. I think there are a number of people who blame the medical management at the governmental level uh, for that problem. And we are seeing a similar thing now. What's your thought on how Catholics should be approaching medical policy, especially when it comes to individual human beings and individual choice? Let me start first by uh, taking the particular and then we can work to the general. But Abraham Lincoln is uh, a very quotable ex-president. as we found out recently. but In Wyoming, yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. But, but I was going to say, uh, he once said that if you, um, if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? The obvious answer is four. 
because calling a tail leg doesn't make it a leg. Okay. Okay. And, and starting from that particular, I would say just by renaming something doesn't necessarily fit to the truth. Um, and, you know, the, the concern of, uh, you know, calling uh, a boy a girl and a girl a boy, that doesn't change the biology. That doesn't change the actual, uh, the, the, the reality of things. Um, you can see what we're dealing with now are all relativist things. And in a non-Catholic world, relativism, I guess, uh, it reigns. It's, well, it serves certain political purposes, too. Well, exactly. Yeah. And when you begin to delve into relativism, what you are going to do, and you're necessarily going to do, is going to neg- negate the existence of God. Because th- what you're doing is you're saying that a truth is not true. Zero does not equal zero. You know, S is equal to not S. You know, those kind of illogical non sequiturs. That's what you're going to have. And so when you can say that, then you can, you know, you can call anything anything you want, and, and you can redefine anything. Therein lies a problem. And we've grown used to uh, a, a society where words matter, you know, and words meant something. Uh, now we just uh, decide we want to change the words. And, or, you know, you say, well, you can change the gender. Well, you, you, it really can't change the, the gender of a person by cutting something off or adding something to it. It's just you are what you are. That's what it is. And um, you can try to make it, but you can't. My concern isn't so much about what someone who's in their adulthood wants to do themselves with their bodies. I, I, I do think there are several issues that get involved there, but it's a different set of issues in some ways when you're dealing with children and parental involvement and doctors and their ability to intervene and what this does to kids. My concern is whether or not from a Catholic perspective, when the government is, is telling us you can or cannot do certain medical interventions that seems to be a dangerous road to go down as we learned in COVID. It, it tied people's hands in some of these treatments that could have been helpful. Perhaps we may have many people who'd be alive today if some of those treatments were available because the government didn't tie the hands of practicing physicians. Do we see a similar risk here in some of the um, policy agendas that are presenting themselves? Well, I, I have to say clearly yes, uh, because, you know, what seems to be the people who are most appropriate and effective about protecting the children are the parents. Where does it say in the Bible, you know, what, what father would give his son a scorpion if he asked for something yeah. else? You know, what? You know, that was Jesus reminding us of that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Good guy. <laughs> Good guy. <laughs> yeah. so, so the parents are the ones who are by default and, and, and honor by creation uh, by creation the, the de facto defenders of their children to make the state to, to have this this a state power superseding that inalienable right and I'll call it an inalienable right because I think by having the state do it as a transgression yeah. is, uh, is you know it, it, it's it's going to be fraught with with a lot of errors and the errors <laughs> always seem to harm the most innocent. So when we look at how we define life, for example, I I can't think of any competent biologist who would not define a human life as beginning at fertilization. Well, I'm not a Supreme Court nominee, (laughs) but 
<laughs> but you can define a woman. But I, but I can define. I can define when life begins. You know, I, I know there are uh, certain wags uh, from uh, other sides of uh, philosophies that say, "Well, life life has always begun. It's a, I mean, it's be it's a, it's a continuum. You have even the sperm and the egg are still alive." You say, "Well, yeah, but they're not individual." You know, you get a unique life with the union of two, and that's it. Another thing I tell the medical students, when you're a doctor, you've got to be life's umpire. You've got to call the balls and strikes. You've got to know what's right and wrong. I'm not asking you to be judgmental about it, but you've got to, you've got to, you've got to know the strike zone. Sperm egg union, bing, you're, you're a new life. That's it. That's unique. So, and going forward from there, it's not going to be a puppy. It's not going to be a, a dolphin. It's going to be a baby. It's going to be a real live human. Well, and the sperm itself is not going to, to grow and change. And no. the egg itself is not going to grow and change. By itself. Only when you put the two of them together in the u- unique um, procession of both the genetic code and the release of enzymes that, or whatever the chemicals are that start the whole process of replication, only then does it start to begin. And it doesn't end until we have a human being dying. Yeah. Whether that's inside the womb through abortion or outside the womb in, in life's activities and eventual old age or natural death. And once the process is started, it, it, it inexorably and inevitably rolls forward unless somebody stops it. So when we're talking about what we've learned from this last couple of years, so far when government gets involved, it it has a positive aspect in bringing resources, but that it also has a tendency to put its head in on policy matters that have a tendency to limit the effectiveness of the doctor. Well, it certainly seems that, you know, and you can say each side of the political aisles uh, um, have have particular pensions for doing certain things, you know, and it's, it's not like I champion one side or the other, but I would say, both sides to champion the one thing, which would be the ultimate tr- absolute truth, and, and there you'll find God. So what you need uh, are people to look up, not down, to get direction and to see what kind of influence government should have on the lives of the people. We're unique in this government, uh, in, in this country, that this is a government designed of the people, by the people, for the people. Another quotable, another, another quotable guy <laughs> said that. So you you think if if we're going to be representing who we are, you'd like to see that coming back to us from government support, empowering the people. That's right, Doctor Merrill. I want to thank you very much again for being here uh, with us and helping us to wrestle a little bit with what it is to navigate that rooftop ridge of how do you practice medicine in our society today as a Catholic. Would you please lead us all in a brief word of prayer? Yes. Uh, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Regard not my sins, but the faith of your church, and deign to give her peace and unity according to your will, who live and reign, God, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. amen. Thank you very much, Dr. Merrill, for both your expertise in that prayer. You have been listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With us today has been Dr. Patrick Merrill, and we have been talking about the Catholic engagement of medicine, and especially in the last couple of years, what lessons we may have learned from how Catholics in medicine need to engage their craft 
in spite of sometimes some of the problems that are in there from our society. If you like this broadcast, you can hear it again by going to Orange County Catholic Radio and finding that at OCCatholic.com. And at OCCatholic.com under the radio tab, you'll find several different radio programs that we produce, including our flagship show, Orange County Catholic Radio, and it will be up as a podcast shortly. Once again, from for all of us from Orange County Catholic Radio, I want to thank you for listening, and we will see you again next week. You want to hear a story about God's grace? Talk about an incredible testimony of God's healing and forgiving power. Here's Father Al Baca on Spirit-Filled Radio. I remember when I was getting prepared for priesthood, I was sent to Oxnard, and I worked at a beautiful church, Santa Clara. And part of what we were supposed to do is look for young people who hadn't made their confirmation yet. So we went door to door to do that. We ended up with, a, I think, a classroom of probably about 25 or 30. And there was this young man that had been involved, I think, probably in gang life. He was there under duress. His mom had forced him to come. And he always sat in the back, and he put his leg up on the other chair, and he you know, put his face towards the wall, and he was just very non-connected. And at the end of it, we were supposed to tell Father whether we thought everybody was ready for confirmation. And we all agreed that this young man wasn't and that it was probably better for him to wait a year or postpone, you know, to a time when he felt it was time. And Father uh, told us, well, I'm going to pray about this over the night, and then I'll let you know. To our surprise, in the morning, Father said, no, he's going to receive confirmation. He said, we're going to trust in the Holy Spirit. And, And we were really taken aback by that, because here, you know, here we're seminarians, we've been trained in the seminary, and... We have the latest information on, on how to go about these things and methodology and so forth. Leading up to that moment of confirmation, we provided a sacrament of reconciliation or penance for all the uh, candidates. And so while we were in church, I was there watching as they went one by one. And he was in line, and then he would move about four or five people back, and then about four or five people back. He kept moving his place. And finally, there was nowhere to go. He was the last one. And as he got very close to the confessional, he got out of his place and came over to me. And he said, I I can't do this. And I said, why? Why can't you do it? No, I can't do it. He says, I've done so much in my life that God could never forgive me. And I said, you know what? Just trust the Lord. And I, I gave him my rosary. And I said, hold this. Mary will give you courage. And go into the confessional. Father will help you. So he did. He went in, and then uh, a few minutes passed, and then 10 minutes, and then 20 minutes. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what's going on? (laughs) You know, did he keel over or whatever? And then the door opened, and his face just glowing, and he ran through the church to me and threw himself in my arms and said, it's real. It's real. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, that young man got immediately involved with church life. And then he started an outreach to gang members. For more great content, check out spiritfilledradio.org. Spiritfilled Radio is in partnership with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange in Southern California. Spiritfilledradio.org. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly 
that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Bishop Robert Barron thinks Catholic radio is important. So should you. 